If you have your copy of the text, to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And as you turn there, I I just want to share with you, um, I I know many of you, some of you I don't, my name is Jimmy. I'm on staff with the seminary here, the one-year seminary. I've been here for the last eight years. And my wife and I are really excited. Uh, We've told many of you, but we're actually changing jobs here soon. Uh, The main seminary out in North Carolina has asked us to come out and plant a replica of what we're doing here at LVC. Here we call it the West Institute. There we're going to call it the East Institute. You can see how original we are. But we're very excited. Uh, We're excited. We covet your prayers. We will be leaving in the moving truck, truck two weeks on the dot from today. Right after service, we'll be driving out. So we covet your prayers. And over the last few weeks, as I've been telling different members of LVC of our excitement to move and what God is doing, the one uh, piece of feedback that I've gotten consistently is there are a lot of people leaving LVC this summer. I mean, there, there really are. In the eight years I've been here, I've seen that this is a church that raises up men and women and sends them out. We, we have people all over the U.S. and all over the globe who have spent time here on staff. But on average, I think we maybe send out one family a summer, well, one staff family at least a summer. This summer, there, there's at least three different elders who are going out. And it's not like there's a church split or anything going on like that. But God is simply calling families forward into new missions fields, to, to new ministries. Carl and Valerie Picard, they're pastoring the church in Cheyenne now. They closed on their house about a month ago, but they've been over there since February. We prayed first service last week for David and Georgia Grafe. And I talked to David yesterday. They made it down to Phoenix just fine. He said, thank you for the prayers. But they're settling into Phoenix, and they're going to start a new tech name ministry. They're going to launch ministry to the technical schools. At least three other families from our church are moving down in the next few weeks to join that. Later this summer, Rich and Peggy Tremaine. Rich has faithfully served this church for so many years. Rich and Peggy both in the children's ministry and so many many other areas. They're moving back home to LaGrange. They're going to be part of the family farm there. And so as we look at our church, there's a tremendous amount of change happening right now. I counted up at least eight other families I know of who in the next few months are going to be leaving LVC. Well, as I, as I meditated on that and as I thought on this last opportunity I have to share God's word with you, what was really heavy on my heart was to encourage you to see the tremendous opportunity this is. It can be a scary time. Change, new leadership, but this is a tremendous opportunity and not just for those who are going forward to do the ministry elsewhere, It's a tremendous opportunity for this local body, for new men and women to raise up, to fill in the holes that are being left. As we prayed for David in Georgia last week, Pastor Paul prayed and he said, Lord, there are some big shoes to fill now. And indeed there are. Indeed there are with every one of these families who are leaving. But guys, this is God's church. It's God's church and it is God who will raise up the men and women to fill in those holes But as we start today, I want to ask you one question, one key question to keep in mind throughout this whole sermon. What is your personal ministry to this local body? In other words, how are you serving LVC? Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're just checking it out, I'm not after you here. If you're just, maybe this is your first time here, eventually this will be something to consider. But if you call LVC home, if you're a Christian and this is your home church, Think through with me, how are you serving this body? I I did some research, I looked up some statistics. LVC is part of the Southern Baptist denomination. 
And across the U.S., there are roughly 15 million people who call themselves Southern Baptist. It was, I dug into it a little deeper, 40% of those who would identify as Southern Baptists actually regularly attend church. Forget serving, forget involvement for a minute. Only 40% even would say they regularly come to church. Now, of that 40%, I did a little bit more research, and I found multiple surveys that are pretty recent that confirmed the 80-20 principle. The 80-20 principle basically says 80% of the people involved, or 20% of the people involved do 80% of the work. So if you do the math, if you do the math nationwide, and this is just on average, roughly 8% of those who would call themselves Southern Baptists are actually involved in the work of the ministry through a local church. That's sad. That said, and I trust that at LVC our statistics are much better than that. I, I truly believe they are. But I ask again this morning, how are you serving this church? What's your ministry to LVC? As I said, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 13, we're going to look at three different gifts. Three gifts that God has given to us that I believe take us from being passive participants of the church to if we understand these three gifts and we live these three gifts out daily in our lives, we will be vital members of the church. And that's what we're called to be. It's one body, one membership. We need to be serving. Well, these three gifts, I believe, are the key. Before we get into the text, let me pray for us. And then we'll, we'll start with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, God, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the church assembled here. Lord, I am so thankful from the bottom of my heart. I'm thankful for LVC. God, it has been a, just a blessing to be part of this body for me, for my wife, now for our little guy, our little son. Lord, I thank you for the ways that this church has poured into me. Lord, given me opportunities to serve, to grow. And Lord, I pray as we look at Ephesians 4 this morning, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would challenge our hearts to see the blessing of ministry, Lord. Lord, to see the opportunities that lie before us. I pray it wouldn't feel like an obligation, but Lord, an opportunity for faithfulness. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 begins this way. Paul writes, therefore. <laughs> we're we're going to stop there for just a minute. Therefore, now we're jumping in the middle of the text, literally halfway through the book of Ephesians. But as we look at this first gift that Paul is going to describe here, you need to understand what Paul has done in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And really, if you boil chapters 1 through 3 down, what Paul has said is, you have received, if you are a Christian, you have received the amazing gift of the gospel. The amazing gift of the gospel. And in chapter 1, he lays out in the gospel, you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You have been given a purpose. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have been redeemed. You know the future. You have been given an eternal inheritance. You have been sealed for all of eternity. That's chapter one. Chapter two, how did you get that? Well, you have gone from death to life by grace through what? Through faith. That's, that's chapter two, the gospel in a nutshell. Chapter three, Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles. And the fact that as he wrote this book, he was literally sitting in a Roman jail. And he writes and he encourages them, be faithful as I have been faithful. Well, chapters 1 through 3, he gives us this first gift, the gospel. Starting here in chapter 4, verse 1, though, 
He's going to tell us how should we, as those who have received the gospel, how should we respond? How should we live in response to the gospel? And look what he says. Look again in verse 1. I'll actually go more than one word this time, I promise. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this verse in many ways serves as the topic sentence for the rest of the entire book. He's going to spend much of chapters 4, 5, and 6 telling us what it is to live out this one verse. So it's pretty important that we understand what this one verse is talking about. Paul says, I implore you to walk. That word walk simply means everything you do. The thoughts you have, the words you speak, the actions you do, you could translate it all of life. All of life should be lived, he says, in a manner worthy. In, in a way. In a way worthy. That word worthy, it means a way that's fitting. A way that's proper. Now it's important to understand that word. It, it appears six times in the New Testament. And every time it appears in the New Testament, it's used of the actions of Christians in response to the action Christ has taken. Catch that, it's important. He's not saying here this is legalism. He's not saying here that you need to do something to earn your salvation. He's saying, no, as you reflect on the gospel, as you reflect on the fact that the God of the universe died on your behalf to redeem you for all of eternity, your life should look different. Your life should look different. There should be a healthy weight that you feel to live a life in response. Well, Paul here has made a really broad statement. He has said your entire life, I'm begging you, your entire life should be lived worthy of the gospel. A question for you to think about. If you were discipling a young believer, maybe they've come to Christ, they understand the basics of chapter 2, and now you're going to try to teach them, you're going to begin to teach them, what next? What do you do? In light of coming to Christ, what actions should be taken? How should this impact your life? Where would you start? Well, if you study through the rest of Ephesians, Paul, as he goes through Ephesians, he's going to talk about lying. He's going to say, God is a truth teller, therefore those who follow him should be truth tellers as well. He's going to talk about stealing. He's going to call believers to work hard to have something to give, not just to be takers. He's going to talk about sexual purity. He's going to say, God is holy. Therefore, his followers should be holy as well. He'll talk about roles in marriage. He'll talk about parenting. He'll talk about roles in society. Eventually, he's going to get to each of those. But think about this. I think there's something to this point. Before Paul talks about any of those topics, he stops and addresses your relationship with the local body of Christ, i.e. the church. He does the same thing in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, this great theology, the great doctrine of the gospel. And he gets to chapter 12, and he says, all right, we need to live as living sacrifices. Where do we begin the church? The local church is a big deal, guys. It's something that many, especially of my generation, have minimized. We go to church maybe when it's convenient. We go to churches where we like the things they offer. We like the music, or we like the preaching, or we like the facility maybe, or what they can offer to our kids. But we look at it as a consumer. What the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us to do is look at it as a contributor. How do we come together in the local church to give? As you study through the New Testament, 
the local church, being part of the local church is never even commanded. It's just assumed. The Apostle Paul can't imagine a world where a believer, a Christian, wouldn't be engaged in a local body of Christ. Well, it's not only something the New Testament takes for granted. As we'll see in verses 2 through 6, the local church is a precious gift. It's a precious gift, and if verse 1 tells us that the gospel is a gift and our response is to walk worthy, what 2 through 6 is going to tell us is the church, the local church, not just big church, everyone believer out there, this precious congregation of LVC, this is a gift. And our response, what Paul is going to say is, preserve the unity. Preserve the unity. Look in verse 2. Paul writes, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, stop there for just a minute. Before Paul tells us the actions to take, what he's doing here is telling us the attitudes that need to motivate those actions. And as you think about this, think what Paul's doing here. If I bring my dad somewhere, and he's going to be in the second service, so I'll pick on him there too. But I bring him to meet a new group, maybe some friends that he's never met. And I pull him aside beforehand and I say, okay, guys, look, I'm bringing my dad with me today. And I'm asking you, treat him with humility. Please, please, please be gentle. Show some patience to him. Exercise tolerance with him. What am I really saying about my dad? Which this is not true at all. Love my dad to death. I'm saying he might step on your toes. There's a possibility here that if you're around him for a while, he might offend you. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying within the local church, you need to understand your toes may get stepped on. You're part of a congregation that's made up of other sinners just like you who love the Lord, who are being more and more made into the image of Christ, but we're not fully there yet. And so Paul is saying, your feelings may be hurt. You may not always feel loved or served or listened to. You may be annoyed at times with the personalities, the immaturities of others. There may be times where you disagree with Bible study leaders or even the pastor and elders. In other words, there are going to be plenty of opportunities in the church for pride, for anger, for impatience to creep in. And what Paul is doing here is he starts to talk about the local church. He is cutting those off at the source. And instead of having pride define our relationships, look what he calls for. He calls for an excess, first, of humility. Now that word humility, in the Roman world, it was a despised word. It was a word that was associated with the lowest of the low, usually with the slaves. They've even found lists of qualities which define a good Roman citizen. And humility is dead last. You wanted to be the man that you walked in and everyone listened. You could throw your weight around and people did what you said. Paul here is calling for the opposite. Humility means considering others more important than yourself. And that word, which was so despised by the Romans, became so crucial to Paul and the other Christians because of the example of Jesus Christ. This is the same word used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul lays out there in Philippians, your salvation came because the God of the universe humbled himself. And those who want to follow him, we're called to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus laid down his life for us. That's a high calling, but it doesn't stop there. Not just humility, he talks about gentleness here. Gentleness is not being overly impressed with your own self-importance. 
Is genuinely thinking and being concerned about others more than yourself? He goes on, he talks about patience and tolerance. Now imagine just for a moment with me, if all of our relationships here at LVC, in your small group, in your home, as a church at large, if all of our relationships were defined by these characteristics, by humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, think of the difference. Truly, think of the difference. The next time someone hurts your feelings, rather than being tempted to pull back from fellowship or going to someone else and bad-mouthing the person, maybe, maybe there's genuine sin and you need to go address it, but you're not going to become bitter on the inside. You are not going to think, well, maybe I'm going to leave that church. I'm just so mad at it. Maybe I'm, gonna, no, I'm not going to go to small group anymore. No, we're going to be more concerned about the body as a whole than my own personal rights. We're going to say, okay, Lord, here's an opportunity for Jimmy to die to self. For me to die to self. If we live this out, we're, gonna, we're going to preserve the unity that Christ has established. And that's what he goes on to. Look in verse 3. He's talking about the attitudes. Now he's going to talk about the actions in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent, that's a packed little word. If you dive into that word, He's not just talking about the hard work that's needed. He's saying there's going to be effort required. This also speaks to the time frame. Some translators have translated this, take the initiative now and pursue peace. One commentary writes this verb, speaks of an urgency, almost a sense of crisis in pursuing peace. In pursuing peace. So as we're motivated by attitudes of humility, what he's saying here is, do you know of disunity that exists? Are you part of some faction within the church? Is there something off between you and a brother or a sister in Christ? He's saying, take the initiative. Don't wait. Don't simmer on it for a while. Humble yourself and pursue them. Why? Well, because Christ has made you one. He has made you one, and your call is to protect that unity. I think a great example of this is marriage. Uh, last weekend, my wife Andrea and I, we celebrated six years of marriage. Six years ago, we stood, I stood right there, and she was right here. Pastor Paul was up here, and we exchanged our vows. Uh, Pastor Paul did one of his uh, infamous express weddings. I think we were up here for a total of 10 minutes. And uh, the weddings I've done in the past, or since then, have been the, the short version as well. Paul says, people just want to see the kiss and get on to the food, and that's exactly what we got. But we, I, I distinctly remember, we stood up here. We kissed. Paul said those magic words, man and wife. And I remember walking with Andy. We got out the doors. We took a left. And we stood there and we went, oh my goodness, we're married now. Like he said a couple of words. We were up there for like 10 minutes and everything changed. How in the world does that work? Well, in the, in the eyes of God and even in the eyes of the world, on June 7th, 2013, my wife and I became one. We were united. Well, any of you who have been married for more than a week know that the fact that the pastor pronounces you united and that God sees you as one doesn't always mean you live like it. Our sin, our pride, they are constantly tempting to come between us and our mate. That which God has made one and commanded us never to separate, oh boy, our hearts get in the way and we bring disunity in all the time, don't, don't we? I mean, don't we? I, I know I am so guilty of this. And at the root of it, it's just pride. It's just pride. It's me wanting my way 
and refusing to love my wife, refusing, refusing ultimately to love Christ more than myself. You see, God has made us one, but we're called to protect that unity. And something I learned from my wife early on, she has this amazing characteristic where she can't stand for the, there to be relational disunity. Uh, if there was something off, I was totally content. I told her often in those first years of marriage, just give me a while. Just give me a while. And she'd say, no, I know we're off. Let's fix this. Well, what I was really saying without saying it is I just want to be mad for a while. In my pride, just let me steam for a little bit. What my wife was doing there is exactly what Paul is telling us to do within the church here. Is something off? Don't let it simmer. That's giving Satan a foothold for disunity within the church. Don't let it simmer. Don't let it stew. Pursue unity. LVC, uh, church, we, we've been made one. The God of the universe has made us one body. And every, every member of that body has a responsibility to work hard to preserve that unity through our attitudes and through our actions. Well, you may look around at times and say, what do we have in common? How can the Apostle Paul, how can Jimmy say we are one? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 4 through 6. Look at what Paul here. And as I read this, catch Paul's main word here. He writes, in, starting in verse 4, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who, or one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in us all. Did you guys catch the main, main word? One. Seven times in these three verses, Paul says one. We have been made one. We are united because of what we share in the gospel. And here he gives us just a basic, a basic list of the things we have in common. He says there's one body, that is the church. There's only one Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you share the same Holy Spirit. We all share the same hope of eternity. We have the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, ultimately the same God and Father. You see, God has given us this amazing gift, a unified church. But our response to that is supposed to be this. Be diligent to preserve the unity. Well, we've seen two gifts. We've seen the gospel. We've seen the church. <coughs> Excuse me. As we move on into verse 7, we want to see this final gift. And this is the one I really want to emphasize this morning. The gift of ministry. The gift of ministry. Look at verse 7. Paul starts out this way. He says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now catch what Paul's doing here. As you read through scripture, it's a good habit to start to catch these little key transition words. You see, Paul just spent three verses saying, we are one. We are one, we are one, we are one, we are one, we are one. But by God's perfect plan, we're different. We're united, but different. Well, how are we different? He says there in verse 7, to each one of us, every individual, if you're a Christian, this applies to you. To each one of us, grace was given. Now that word there, grace, you could simply translate that as a gift. He has given a gift. We're going to talk about what those gifts are. We're going to talk about the purpose of those gifts. But he starts out and says, a, a gift was given. And how did that come? It came according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as I've studied through this passage, this is the one phrase that time and time again has just kind of pulled me up short. What this pictures here is like a commanding general who has gone out and won a great victory. 
He's gone to the ends of the Roman world. He's brought back all the spoils. And he gathers the men in who were there for the victory with him. He knows these men personally. He has this great storehouse of treasures behind him. And he says, hey, you were there for this battle. Here, I have something. This is for you. It reminds me of you. It's going to, be per- it's going to fit perfect on the mantle. I know your home mantle is going to go up there just right. There's an intimacy here. There's a knowledge here. God is saying it's according to Jesus' perfect measurement that every single Christian receives the exact right gift. This isn't like the ugly sweater you got one time that you just hid in the closet, or maybe the bad-smelling cologne that you got in your stocking. You thought, I would never wear that, but mom's here, and I can't do anything about it. So it went in the, went in the bathroom, and it just stays there forever. No, these are perfect gifts from a God who, I mean, think about this. This is the God who spoke the worlds into existence. It's the God who owns all things. The God who formed you together in your mother's womb, who knows every hair on your head. He is the God who washed you with his own blood. He's the king of the church, and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father, and he gave you a personalized gift. That ought to blow your mind a little bit. It ought to blow your mind. It also ought to challenge us to not just put that gift on the shelf, to, to not just put it out in the garage. We've been cleaning out our houses. We prepare for a move. We're trying to fit into a 16-foot U-Haul, and that's a really bad idea. We're deciding. But I think we're going to do it. But we've taken like three loads to the dump. We're just trimming everything down. But we found so many things that we said, I forgot I had that. I forgot I had that. It's just been hiding away for all these years. The gifts of God should never be treated like that. They're to be put into action Because the king of the church has given them to the church for the building up of the church. Uh, Look, as we go on into verse 8, he's going to talk about Christ here and his right to give these gifts. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, the expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is he himself who also ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now, it's a complicated few verses, but what Paul is doing here, he's referencing back to Psalm 68, and he's either summarizing Psalm 68 or directly quoting it. There's a little bit of debate. But either way, if you go back and study Psalm 68, what you find, Psalm 68 describes that when the children of Israel were trapped in Egypt, they were slaves, God came down. He rescued them. He led them through the wilderness And when he was done and he led them into the promised land, he ascended up into the temple, he ascended up into the tabernacle, and he blessed the Israelites. Well, what Paul is saying here is in the same way Jesus Christ has come down. He has won the victory, not over Pharaoh, he's won the victory over sin, over death. He has lived the perfect life, he has died, he has been raised, and he now has ascended to heaven. And if God in the Old Testament, based on the victory over the Egyptians, could bless, oh man, Jesus Christ can give out gifts. He has earned the right. Well, what do we do with verse 9? I just want to stop on this for just a minute. It's a confusing verse. He talks about descending into the lower parts of the earth. There's two basic ways you can understand this verse. The NASB, which I'm reading out of, translates this. It says, he descends into the lower parts of the earth, which many throughout church history have used this verse to argue that while Jesus was in the grave, he descended into hell itself, proclaimed victory before he was raised from the grave. Uh, That's possible. I don't think that's the best understanding here, though. 
Another legitimate translation, and if you have the ESV or the NIV, you'll notice there's an important little comma in there. It said that he descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. And what it seems to be saying and applying there is that he came down, and he's not talking about he went down into hell. No, his descension is he came down from heaven to earth. He won the victory on this earth, and then he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So the descension is to earth itself. And I think that's what he's talking about here. It fits so nicely with Philippians chapter 2. As I said earlier, the God of the universe humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He came down and lived on this earth. And not only that, he died on the cross for us. He was raised again, and now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well, however you slice it, Jesus has ascended, and as verse 10 says, he is now filling all things. Well, how is he filling all things? What is he doing in this church age? How is he at work? How is he putting his glory on display? Well, verse 11 begins to give us the answer. It says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. We'll stop there for a minute. Paul here, he lists off some of the gifts in the early church. Specifically here, he's looking at leadership within the early church. Elsewhere in scripture, we find other gift listings. But here, he's just mostly looking at the leadership. And what he's laying out is the perfect giver of gifts has given perfect gifts for a purpose. He's given it for a purpose. And with leadership, what's that purpose? Well, he says in verse 12, look at verse 12, the first half of it. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. If you think about the pastor, if you think about the elders as those who are here to entertain you on Sunday morning, maybe those who are the professional ministers, they marry and they bury and that's about all they do. And maybe they're the ones that do the work of the ministry and you just show up and you tithe faithfully, you're part of that in that way. You're missing what verse 12 has to say. What verse 12 says is God has given gifted leaders to the church to equip the church to do the work of ministry. What that implies is that if you're here today and you're a Christian, there's work for you to do within this body. There's work to be done. And how do you know what, it, what that work is? How do you get ready to do that work? Well, God has given you an amazing gift. Elders, Bible study leaders, those men and women who pour their lives into you, and specifically here, Pastor Paul is, is talking about the leaders, the preachers. They're a gift to the church, but that gift has a purpose, and that purpose is to equip us, the body, to do the work of the ministry. Now think of what this means. These giftings, they're not for you. They're given to you, but they're not for you. They are given to build up your local body. They're given to minister to others here at LVC. Church is not chiefly about where you come just to receive. It's supposed to be about where we come to give, to use our gifting to minister to others. And we have a shared goal. Look at verse 13. We'll end with this verse, but he says, How long are we going to do this, this work of the ministry? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the mature stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I love those four words that Paul starts with here. He says, until we all attain. In the Greek, he actually throws in another we there. In the Greek, you could translate this, until we all, we all attain. You can see Paul here is trying to drive us beyond just a self-focus. He's saying God has given gifts to the church, 
but the church ought to be looking at itself as a whole to use those gifts. We have our eyes on our brothers and sisters around us, and we say, how can I press them into maturity? How can I use the gifting that God has given me, whatever that may be, whatever that may be, whether that's serving downstairs with our little kiddos on Sunday morning, maybe that's coming early for nine months out of the year to help shovel our sidewalks. That's one part I'm not going to miss in North Carolina. We will have the bugs and the heat, but we won't have the snow in June. But maybe you can come, you, you can serve the body in a practical way. Maybe that's meeting people's needs. Maybe you have the, the resources, the, the finances, or the things that you can meet a practical need of someone. Whatever it is, my encouragement, my challenge to you, as we look at a season of, of change here at LVC, at so many leaving, at the holes that will be left, I encourage you to prayerfully consider how might God use you? How might God use you to serve this body? Some of you have been here for years. You've been here for years, and you have an area that you are serving in. Thank you for your ministry. And I'd encourage you to even pray, okay, is there more I could be doing? It's easy to kind of get into the rut of normal and just say, okay, well, this is what we do. This is my ministry. I do it this day, and then the rest of the week is mine. Prayerfully consider, maybe is there more to do? Maybe you've been here for months or maybe some of your years, and you just haven't found a spot to get plugged in to serve. I'd encourage you, and this is not like an obligation. This is not like, oh man, you better do this or else. You're missing out on the joy of ministry, and this body is missing out on your service. Would you prayerfully consider, how can you minister to this body? And if you don't know where to start, well, Ephesians 4 tells us you have an amazing gift. You have a spot to start. Find an elder. Find a pastor. Do the new church membership class. Start to learn God's word, participate in something like the Bible Institute, or get involved in a small group, find somewhere to serve. As I end, I'll, I'll end with an example. Uh, Rick Osborne, uh, most of you know Rick and Stephanie Osborne. I've had the joy of getting to know Rick really well over the last six years. He's done our early morning Bible Institute program, I think three or four times, and become a good friend. Rick and his wife are professional photographers. They do an amazing job at photography. And for several years, as they were just getting involved here at LVC, their ministry to this church, if you would ask them, well, what are you doing for the church, was photography. And we were thankful for that. Any of you who have been baptized in the last four or five years, actually probably six or seven years, there's a good chance that either Rick or Steph took your photo. They took our staff photos. They're always there with the camera. They've done such a good job capturing key moments in this church's life. But about a year ago, Rick, as he was praying and as he was learning more and more about God's word, he just had a burden on his heart. He thought, you know what? It's great that I can take photos, but is there something more I can do to serve the body? To, to serve the body, I don't want to just give him a photo. I want to pour my life into something. And so he started out, he and his wife, they served in the Sunday school downstairs. They took a, a season to serve down there. And he found, well, you know, I, I enjoy serving, but I don't know if that's quite the area I'm going to serve. And so he was just praying, okay, Lord, where would I serve? And Jason Nelson got up here about a year ago and made an announcement about camp, just like Steve did this morning, and said, hey, we have some spots. We still need someone to be a high school guy's counselor. Would someone pray about that? And it just got a hold of Rick's heart. And they prayed, and as you can imagine, as photographers, their summers are very busy, and, and every week is usually jam-packed with, with different events and different weddings. And they looked, and sure enough, that whole week was open. So Rick signed up, and he got up there, and he loved it. 
he loved it. He had never done anything quite like that before through the church, but he loved it. And that one-week commitment turned into a whole year of serving in our youth group. And Rick has not only faithfully walked along our high school men for the last year, he's had several opportunities to preach to the whole group. And as I've talked to him over the course of the last year, several times he said, man, you know what? I was missing out. I love what I'm doing now. He said, I'm tired, but it's a good kind of tired. It's not just I've been so busy. It's I'm pouring my life out for the sake of others. And there is a joy. If you talk to Rick about it, he just can't get over it. Man, God would use someone like me. That is so cool. I encourage you, don't, don't feel like there's a pressure, like I have to do something. I'd encourage you, you're missing out on the joy of ministry. And this church is missing out on a member of the body if you're not serving. As I close today, uh, one special word for our fathers. We'll recognize you at the end. But I just want to read a quote. Uh, this is from Kent Hughes. He has a book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's a book that's been a great encouragement to me over the years. It's one I come back to often. But he writes this specifically aimed at dads and their involvement in the church. He says, if the great doctrine of the church tells us anything, it tells us that whoever you are, however busy you may be, whether you're the U.S. president, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a Fortune 500 business executive, or a leader of a parachurch ministry, the church must be at the very center of your life. Church hitchhiking is an aberration. The church and the lost world need men who practice the discipline of church. I pray that's an encouragement and a challenge to us. Dads, as we're leading our families, I pray that we're not only financially providing for our families, and that's hard work. Many of you are busy working 50, 60 hours a week. But I pray as your families watch, they see that you love the Lord. And they see that you love the church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for today. Lord, thank you again for your word. God, I thank you that you have not left us just to make up what we think is right and wrong. Lord, you've told us. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on these gifts, the gift of the gospel, Lord, the gift of the church, and the gift of ministry, that you would stir our hearts to obedience. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is known by our love for one another, Lord, our ministry for one another. Lord, even later in Ephesians chapter 4, through the Apostle Paul, you said that as we all minister our gifts, we strengthen each other. I pray that would be the testimony of LVC, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.